Now, friends, we come today to this 36th chapter of the book of Exodus, and very candidly, we return back to the instructions that concern the tabernacle. You see, he's not going to let us get away from that. Before it was the instructions how to build it, now we see that they're building it according to the instructions. And as we have it in our book, that the tabernacle is God's portrait of Christ. It reveals him. And now we want to see that and see the total picture. And that's the reason we wanted you to have the tabernacle, the chart we have right before you. And I'm going to begin reading here. Then wrought Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that the Lord had commanded. Now, practically, a whole crew, I would be afraid to venture the number, but it must have been a very large number of folk who were engaged in building the tabernacle. The man in charge was Bezalel. And verse 2 I read, And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even every one whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. Now, I want you to notice something that's very important here, and it's essential for the work of the Lord. Now, if you have accepted an office in your church grudgingly, they came to you and asked you to be a deacon, and you said, oh, well, if you can't find somebody else, then I'll do it. Or use that same excuse when they ask you to teach a Sunday school class or to sing in the choir. Oh, I'll do it. You know, that attitude. Well, if that's the way you're going to do it, don't do it. God can't use it. It's no good for him. Here are men that are actually to carve out these beautiful articles that are to be used. And this is not a job they're on. They are not watching the clock. They don't belong to the union. They don't work just a certain number of hours a week. They are not just doing this because it's a duty, not because they have to. They've been slaves, and now they're slaving again. But how are they slaving? Well, they're slaving now because they want to. <laughs> Before, they didn't want to. They're doing it now because their heart's in it. And that's the way that you do God's work. I had a young preacher that came to me, and he told me, he said, you know, said, I like the minister, but I just don't like preaching. I just don't care for that. And I suggested he get out of the ministry. I said, the minister's no place for a man who does not love to study the Word of God. And if you can't do it with enthusiasm and give it out with enthusiasm, why, you ought not to do it. I listened to a preacher, actually a young preacher, and he uh, was formerly in a class of mine. He was a student. And he gives me a lot of credit, but he ought not to. I don't want the credit. I listen to him preach. What a hassle. What an effort. What lack of enthusiasm. Why, my friend, you can't do it with eagerness and enthusiasm and with a great deal of verve and vigor and vitality. Then don't do it. God doesn't want it. Notice how Bezalel, you hear him talking and see him rushing to the job. You say, my, 
Where's he going? To a football game, a baseball game, or to some social? No, he's going to work. <laughs> he's doing it for the Lord. And you know if folk came to church next Sunday in your church and mine like that, the whole town would be coming out to see what in the world's happened in the church. It'd be a revival. God's work is to be done with enthusiasm. We're to do these things that way, and that is Christian conduct, by the way. And I frankly think that's the only thing that we're to do. We are to do it with enthusiasm. Paul said in Romans 14, verse 5, "...let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind." That's the way that he's to do anything. You're to be fully persuaded. I'm doing this because I want to do it. I'm eager to do it. Woe is me, Paul says, if I preach not the gospel. This is something I want to do. Those 300 of Gideon went down to the water. They didn't lap it up. They just put their hands in it and threw it up at their mouth. And they said, where are those Midianites? We want to get to them. I tell you, that's the kind of enthusiasm we need in the church today. We have too many dead saints. And I mean they're dead before they buried them. And that's the thing that makes it bad. Now, will you notice, this is the way they were to work. But here's something else. Verse 3, "...and they received of Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary to make it withal. And they brought yet unto him free offerings every morning." And all the wise men that wrought all the work of the sanctuary came every man from his work which they made. And they... Now listen to this. Here's a verse that'll startle you. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. Now this is the only place on record, as far as I know, that they had to ask the people to stop giving. They had already brought more than they needed. I've never heard of an offering like that before. This is really a miracle to have an offering like that. The people bring too much. And Moses gave the commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. They were not urged to give. They were restrained and told, You brought enough. My, that is amazing, friends. And you must remember, these people are just out of slavery. They've never had anything of their own before. And you'd think now that they would husband it and would not give, but here they're giving graciously and giving hilariously and giving joyfully. You see, whatever you do for God, you're to do it enthusiastically. That's the way he wants it done, and that's the way that he wants giving done, is to give like that. There was that motto years ago, give till it hurts. Well, God says, if it hurts, don't give. But if it helps and makes you joyful, then give. And that's the way a child of God should give to the Lord's work. Do it joyfully. This is something that's really enthusiastic that needs to be done today. Even the offering ought to be done with great joy. We should give that way. Now, we find here that they are restrained from giving. They've given too much. Now, sometimes I hear this today. 
I heard it not long ago of a certain missionary that told about that they had a certain project and that they prayed the Lord to send in the money and that exactly enough came in to take care of the project. And he emphasized that it was just exactly enough, not a dollar short nor a dollar over. And he said that was an evidence that God was in it. Well, may I say to you, if he'd have got several hundred dollars more, then I would agree it was of the Lord. I'm not sure it was. I think the Lord does exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think when he's in it. And therefore, he'll always give more. That's the way you can always tell when he's in it. It's when it's more than enough, not when it's exactly the amount. And so here they brought much more. This is a marvelous thing, is it not? Now we have here, uh, going over again, of the different articles and the different parts of the tabernacle. And this sounds like a repeat. The only thing is, we had the blueprint before, now they're executing the job. And we not only need a blueprint, but we need the materials, and we need to go to work. And that's what they're doing. Now we're told in verse 8, they're making first the linen curtains. And every wise-hearted man among them that wrought the work of the tabernacle made ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work made he them. This was the covering of the tabernacle. Actually, it was the covering of all the tabernacle. It was the covering that went on the articles of furniture first when they went out on the wilderness march. It was the fence outside. All was the linen. Now, that fine twine Egyptian byssus linen speaks of the righteousness of Christ. It speaks of who he is, his character, and it speaks of the righteousness that he provides for us that what we might be clothed and stand in God's presence. And the thing that's all important is to see that Christ is adequate to meet our needs, that he's able to save. And you'll notice so many times it says he is able. He's able to deliver us. That's important to see. Now, that's the first thing that we have. Now, we have the curtains of goat's hair and the covering of ram skin and the boards and the sockets. This has to do, friends, with the outside of the tabernacle. As I have said before in my book, I've dwelt on the articles of furniture, the tabernacle, but I believe that every thread and every piece of cord, every stake, every color, all of that speaks of the person of Christ in some way or another. And that's what we have here. We have now the boards and the sockets. Now, the tabernacle proper was 30 cubits long by 10 cubits wide by 10 cubits high. And it was made of acacia wood, and these boards were overlaid with gold all the way around. And they were a cubit and a half wide. And on the wilderness march, they were very heavy to carry. And you find that they were carried in wagons. All the articles of furniture were carried on the shoulders of the priests, the family of Levi. And you find here that this outer shell, as it were, with these golden boards, and they were upright, 
but each one of them had certain sockets. That is, they had tenons that would fit down in sockets of silver so that the entire tabernacle rested upon the silver. And the silver, as we shall see, is redemption. And then you find that that was the entire tabernacle proper. But then we find that it was held together by bars. There were certain rings put in each board. And then when it was set up, these bars were fitted in place, run through, and that would bind the tabernacle together. It was a very compact sort of thing, you see. And then it had an inner veil. And I'm not going to read all of the instructions again. I've read them once. And it had this inner veil that separated the main tabernacle into two compartments. The smaller compartment was the Holy of Holies. And then the larger compartment, which the priests entered first, was called the Holy Place. And then there was the outer court. And around the outer court, there was a fence five cubits high made of fine twine, white, bisous, Egyptian linen, 100 cubits long by 50 cubits wide. And it was fitted upon these poles, actually. It was made into a fence, and these were posts, and they were made of brass. And that, again, speaks of judgment of sin. And the two articles of furniture in the outer court, you have the brazen altar and the laver. And then you step inside, and you have the three articles of furniture in the holy place. That's the golden lampstand the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And then in the holy place you have the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. Now, at this time, I'm not going into measurements of the articles of furniture except to call attention to several things that concern them. Actually, there are three compartments to the tabernacle. There are three entrances to the tabernacle. Out in front, there was that led into the outer court through the fence was this gate. And then there was the door of the tabernacle that led into it properly, into the holy place, and then into the holy of holies, into which only the high priest went once a year. And we'll see that on the Day of Atonement when we get to Leviticus. Why, he went in past the veil, and he took blood, and he put it on the mercy seat. And that is what made it a mercy seat. It was just a top for the box. Now, there were therefore these seven articles of furniture, ranged as they are. And they present a very wonderful picture for us here, friends. The brazen altar speaks of the cross of Christ. That's where you receive forgiveness of sin. The next one is the laver. That's where the priests went for washing. That speaks of the fact that Christ today washes those that are on their feet. That's where we confess our sins. And that's the place where we get washed. The brazen altars where sinners are forgiven, and the lavers where saints are cleansed, receive forgiveness. And then in the holy place is the place of worship. There's the golden lampstand. That's Christ, the light of the world. The table of showbread is Christ, the bread of life that we feed on today. And then the altar of incense is the altar of prayer. It speaks of the fact he's our intercessor for that altar in Hebrews has been moved into the Holy of Holies. But it's outside also where you and I come today. And in worship, therefore, and this is the place where believers come, and only believers could come in here. 
And if you want the light of the world, you went outside. If you want the light from the lampstand, you got to come inside. If you want to serve Christ, friend, you don't walk by the wisdom of the world. You walk by the light of the Word of God. The table of showbreads when you feed on Him, and that's worship. And when we pray, and prayer has to do with praise to God, thanksgiving to Him. It has to do with requests. It has to do with confession. These are the things that have to do with worship. And all of that is in the holy place. Then in the holy of holies, that is where he's gone into the presence of God. And we're told to come there that it's a throne of grace, that we might find grace and help and obtain mercy. That's a mercy seat for us today. Now, when Christ came to this earth, he not only fulfilled all this, but he did something quite unusual. This tabernacle was always horizontal to the earth. It was always put out there on the wilderness march. May I say that what Christ did now is make it perpendicular. The cross is here on earth. The lava is the place where you and I come in confession, but he's up yonder to cleanse us and to forgive us our sins. And then we worship God in spirit and in truth today. And he's up yonder in heaven. That's where the holy of holies is. And the throne of God's become a mercy seat. And we approach there. We don't go horizontally to God today by going actually to a building or to a man. But we look up and go directly to him today. And we go through Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, as I've been talking to you today... I have been looking at this chart of the tabernacle. I trust that you have. And I just took it when I said that it was horizontal with there, and I just ended it up. And if you'll end it up, you'll see the position of everything today. The cross was down here where he died. He died down here to save us, but he's gone up yonder, and he lives up there, the living Christ, to keep us saved. And you and I approach him this way. Where are you today, friend? All kinds of folk are listening. Do you need to stand at the brazen altar to be saved? There are many church members that need to go there. Are you a dirty Christian that you need to confess your sins? You need to stand at the laver? Are you walking actually in darkness today? We get so many letters from folk who thought they were Christians, and they were not. Maybe you're not feeding on Christ and you're pretty anemic. And maybe you need to go to the golden altar of incense. Maybe your prayer life is very beggarly today. These are the places. And maybe you are in trouble and in a dark place and you need mercy and you need grace to help and you're in a time of need. Well, there's that mercy seat for you today and go there. Now today, friends, as we come to the 38th chapter of the book of Exodus, we're still in this section where we are looking at the tabernacle. The blueprint was given beginning at chapter 25 for all of the details of the tabernacle. And now Bezalel and his helpers are constructing the tabernacle. In fact, I take it that the tabernacle has been constructed but just hasn't been set in order as it will be. And chapter 38 pays particular attention to the outer court. I would say that everything that's in chapter 38 relates to the outer court. And friends, this is very important for us to see. 
Now, the tabernacle proper was 30 cubits by 10 cubits. Now, we have paid attention to that. We've gone into the details of that. And I hope you have before you right now in our notes, we have an entire page given to the chart of the tabernacle. I'm looking at that right now. I hope you are. And if you are, it'll make this more meaningful to you. Now, the main tabernacle, or the main part of it, was 30 by 10 by 10 cubits. It was made of boards that were acacia wood overlaid with gold on all sides and joined together by bars and held upright by the fact that they were put down in sockets. And they were carried on the wilderness march. And then the minute that the children of Israel would come into camp, the pillar of cloud would stop. Then they would come up and under it. And the tabernacle that had been carried all through the camp, we're going to see that in the book of Numbers, that three tribes would move out and then part of the tabernacle, and the ark would always lead on the wilderness march. So the ark would come in, and it was put down down on the sand of the desert. And then all around it, the tabernacle would be put up. And then you'd have in this particular section... You'd have these golden bars that would be put down along the side. They were held together by the rings and the boards, and that bound the tabernacle together. Then over it, there would be put these four robes, actually, or four coverings. You have the first covering, which would be the linen, then the goat skins dyed red, the ram skin, and then the badges or seal skin on the outside, that was to protect it. The beauty of the tabernacle had to be seen from within. And everything within speaks of worship and, of course, praise, adoration of God, blessing to the individual. Now, in this outer court, which was a hundred cubits by fifty cubits, there were these two articles of furniture that were out there, the brazen altar and laver. Now, here is where the sin question had to be settled. The sinner would come here to the gate, and when he would stand there as a sinner, the priest would bring him in. He'd put his right hand upon the head of the victim, whether it was a lamb or a goat or whether it was another animal like an ox. Then the animal was slain. Then the priest would offer it on the altar. That is as far as the individual went. From then on, he went in the person of his priest. And the priest had to stop and wash at the labor. So that when he entered into the holy place, and he entered in by the door of the tabernacle, into the holy place, and in that were three articles of furniture, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. All of those, as we've seen, speak of worship. Now, he didn't dare go beyond that because there was the veil, and beyond the veil was the ark and the mercy seat. And only the great high priest went there, and he went there for the nation. Now, I think today we're going to see something especially significant and especially meaningful, actually, for us today. Now, will you notice, first of all, the altar of burnt offering 
is brought to our attention. I begin reading now at verse 1. And he made the altar of burnt offering of chittim wood. Five cubits was the length thereof, five cubits the breadth thereof. It was four square, and three cubits the height thereof. Now, the height of it equaled, of course, the ark or the mercy seat on the inside. Here was where the victim was offered, and that was the judgment of the sin of the individual that came. Or, in many cases, it was the nation that was in view. And when it was the nation, it was the morning and evening sacrifice, and was a burnt offering. But on here was all of the offerings that were made in Israel. When this altar was constructed, no other altar could be made. It would be absolutely blasphemy to build any other altar anywhere else. This is the approach to God. Only by the cross, you see. Now, it's five cubits by five cubits. It's the largest article of furniture, as you can see. Actually, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and three cubits, which would mean four and a half feet high. All the other articles could have been apparently put on the inside of it. And it was the prominent place, because here is where the sin question must be settled. There'd be no such thing as worship and no such thing as blessing until they came by this altar here. Now, the horns speak of strength, the ability of Christ to save. And now we have instructions here concerning the details that have to do with the altar. There had to be certain pots and pans and staves and rings and all that sort of thing. And I think there's meaning in every detail, as we've said. Now you have in verse 8, "...and he made the lava of brass and the foot of it of brass." Now there was a place beneath for the washing of the feet, and the place above was for the washing of the hands. And it was made of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation." Now, those mirrors were made of brass. In that day, mirrors were high-polished brass, and women hadn't changed. They carried mirrors in that day, and I guess they were much heavier than some of the pocketbooks that some of the women carried today. But in that day, they had that which was heavy, you see. But the women brought their mirrors, and the brazen label was made out of those mirrors. The mirror represents the Word of God. It's the Word of God that shows the believer that he needs cleansing. And the labor's there for the cleansing. You have the same thing in your bathroom. You have a mirror, and beneath the mirror, you have a wash basin. Now, the mirror doesn't wash at all. The law today won't save you. You can rub up against it all you want to. But there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Now, these are the two articles of furniture that are in the outer court. Now, he's going to talk about that outer court. He hasn't talked about it much before. Verse 9, "...and he made the court on the south side southward, the hangings of the court, were of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits. Their pillars were twenty, and their brazen sockets twenty. 
The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver, and for the north side of the hangings. And it was the same thing on the north side, and it would be fifty on the two ends of the outer court of this fence that's around. Now, that fine twine byssus linen, you see, again speaks of the humanity of Christ. And that separated, actually, man from God. I was greatly distressed to have handed to me an article concerning a message that a president of a so-called conservative seminary gave at one of these knife and fork clubs. I'd spoken at that club years ago. Well, the reporter, as he took the message down, said that this preacher made the statement that what we needed to do was to follow the teachings of Jesus. Even if you denied the deity of Christ, if you just follow the teachings of Jesus, you'd bring peace into the world. Well, that's not true. There's no peace for man apart from the shed blood of Christ, friends. You see, that linen fence shut man out from God. The life of Christ doesn't save us. It's the death of Christ that saves us. And when we have preachers that pretend to be conservative, giving a message like that, no wonder there's so much confusion in the world today. But anywhere you turn in God's Word, even to the tabernacle at the very beginning, when God is teaching man by picture, all of these things happen to them, for examples, unto us. If you can just read an ABC book and look at pictures like a baby, you can understand that the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ cannot save you. To begin with, you couldn't measure up to his life nor his teachings at all. And it's perfect nonsense to whine out that type of thing today. It's been ground out now by modernism for years that's got us in the difficulty we're in in this country today. And it's time somebody is putting it right on the line and telling it like it is. The teachings of Christ won't save you, friends. It was the death of Christ upon the cross. And this white linen fence shut out man from God and God from man. He'll have to be approached some other way. And that's the reason that brazen altar is there. Now, this fence, to take a look at it, there were sockets here, not a silver. The sockets were silver, the tabernacle proper, but here a brass. And brass, as we've seen, is the metal of judgment. That picture of the glorified Christ, his feet was like burnished brass. I tell you, my friend, the sin question has to be judged. You can't go into God's presence today any more than you could take a criminal out of death row and turn him loose in society and present to him a house and lot and $50,000 to begin life. God doesn't do that sort of thing, and men better not do that sort of thing. The sin question must be settled. A man must recognize that he is a sinner and come into God's presence on that, so that the outer course rested upon brass. But at the top, there was these capitals that were on top of the posts as they were around. They were made of silver, and you know, silver is the medal of redemption. We'll see that again in this chapter. It's very important for us to see that, by the way. Now, we find, therefore, that in the outer court, 
even in this fence that was around it, that that shut man out, but that God had made a way. And it was that he had judged sin and provided a redemption for man that he might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What a picture. Well, you could stand there and look at the tabernacle and get the gospel, my friend. It's there for us. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the details of the court, because to me, if you're just going to read them, all you've got is a blueprint, and it gets pretty boring. Now, it may not get boring to you, but it does to me. So I'm going to drop down now to verse 18, because now there is an entrance. You don't climb over the fence. You have to come in through the gate through the door into the sheepfold. And here's the gate and the door. Now, verse 18, "...in the hanging for the gate of the court was needlework of blue and purple and scarlet." All of these speak of the person of Christ. Blue, he came from heaven as deity. And the scarlet speaks of his humanity, the blood he shed. And blue and scarlet combined give you the purple and purple is royalty. He was born king of the Jews. Now, will you notice? And twenty cubits was the length, and the height of the bread was five cubits. That was as high as the fence was on the outside. That'd be seven and a half feet. That'd be pretty hard even for a basketball player to look over into the inside. You see, it shut man out altogether. Now, you find this is the entrance. It's a wide entrance. Anyone can come. It's wide enough for any sinner to come in. But this is the way that he'll have to come. This is the entrance. No other entrance anywhere. That's so important to see. You actually have three entrances into the Holy of Holies, and you have only one that can bring us into the presence of God, and that's Christ. And you remember he said, I am the way. The way here is the gate. He says, I am the truth. The truth is the way into the place of worship. And you remember the Lord Jesus said, if you're going to worship God, you'll have to worship him in spirit and truth. I have news for you. And I don't mean to be harsh, but it is harsh. You don't worship God going to a liberal church, friend. You've got to worship him in truth. You can't deny the deity of Christ. You can't deny he died for your sins and worship him. You insult him. You don't worship, you insult him. And actually, it would be best if a lot of folk would not even go to church. That is, to certain churches, their own condition is not good. And certainly the church there is insulting the Lord Jesus. You have to worship him in truth. And therefore, that is the thing he said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now, that veil speaks of the life he gave up on the cross, and the veil was rent in twain, and he brings you right into the presence of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. You don't rush into God's presence, friend. Where did you get the idea you could come unannounced? Where did you get the impression that I had sort of a secret way into God? I don't have one. I can only come through Christ. Every sinner has to come this way into his presence. Now, here is the thing that I want to call your attention to that I think is amazing. There's always been the question of the individual Israelite. The nation Israel is called a son. God never called an individual Israelite. And the question was, and by the way, is today, who is a Jew? Is he one that has just been born a Jew? 
or does his religion make him a Jew? Well, actually, in the Old Testament, and I agree with the Orthodox Jews in the nation Israel today, that you have to be born one. And God had a provision that you had to be a redeemed, which means you had to be a born-again one. Now, he made a provision. Did you know the nation was a chosen nation, but each individual had to be redeemed? Now, will you notice this? I'll have to drop down now to verse 25. "...and the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was a hundred talents and a thousand seven hundred and threescore and fifteen shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, a beaker for every man that is half a shekel." Now, these are measurements that even if we knew what they mean, and I could tell you what they mean, but it would be meaningless because that's not the thing that's important for us today. There's a spiritual message for us because I don't expect any of you to bring any silver to be accepted because we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, which is more precious than silver and gold. So don't be bringing silver and gold. You can't buy your way in. But silver was the metal of redemption, and every Israelite had to be redeemed to be acceptable. Now, let's understand that very thoroughly, because you hear the argument. Many people come and say, well, you mean that every Jew, because he's a member of the chosen nation, was saved in that day? No, no, my only a remnant. All the way through it was a remnant. It's a remnant today of those people. And frankly, it's a remnant of the Gentiles today. And I want to say this. A very small percentage of church members are saved. very small percentage. A very wealthy man in Tulsa, Oklahoma, an oil man, he said to me, we were playing golf. He said, you know, my wife and I used to go, and they mentioned a certain church. And he says, we went there and sat down with the rest of the hypocrites. None of us, he said, were born again. We just put up a front. And even before Sunday night, when the sun went down, we were all drunk. May I say to you, your church members today, that doesn't mean very much in these days in which we are living. You have to be redeemed, and these people had to be redeemed. Now, notice, I'll have to drop down here. A beaker for every man that's half a shekel, after the shekel of the sanctuary, for them to be numbered. And verse 27, And the hundred talents of silver were cast, the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil, a hundred sockets of the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. In other words, the redemption money is what made these sockets. That is, this was where the tabernacle proper was placed. It rested upon silver and rested upon redemption. Now, you and I today, and every individual will have to personally accept the redemption that's in Christ. You have to pay the redemption price. Now, what is that redemption price? Well, it's without silver and gold. Oh, everyone that thirsty. The only condition is today, are you thirsty? Would you like to have a drink of the water of life? It's free, friends. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It costs God everything. He gave His Son to die and to pay the price, and you are redeemed today by blood. These people had to accept a redemption, the individual, before actually he was redeemed. And many did not, of course. Here in the wilderness, they had to accept it. It was forced upon them. But when they got in the land, if they wanted to be numbered, they had to pay a redemption price. 
Thank God it's already been paid for us. And it's without money and without price today. It's just to be thirsty. Do you want to be saved? Do you recognize you have a need, that you're a sinner? Then come. The money's been paid. And that money was the blood of Christ. And it enables you to come to God and to be accepted through Christ. What a picture we have here in the outer court. Now, friends, as we come to the 39th chapter of the book of Exodus, and if you have your Bible, we'll turn there, and I trust you have our notes and outlines. And we will now offer the notes on the Gospel of Mark. And I'm sure many of you have those, because that'll be the next book that we'll go to. And this is our last study in Exodus. This has been, for me, one of the most rewarding studies that I've had. You see that a great many people say, well, you don't seem to have any opportunity to hear others preach. And I only have when I go to conferences where there are other speakers, and it's always a blessing to my heart to hear them, but I hear so little of it. And someone says, well, then, how are you blessed? Well, you know, when you put warm water through a spigot, the spigot will warm up. And if you put cold water through a spigot, the spigot will get cool. Well, when you put the Word of God through a preacher or a teacher, it'll have some effect on him. And I find that just studying the Word of God this way, sitting down with the Bible and teaching each day, has been for me one of the most rewarding experiences. And the book of Exodus has blessed my own heart in a new way and has given me a greater understanding and appreciation of our wonderful Lord. I hope it's had the same value for you also. Now, as we come to this 39th chapter, which is actually not the last chapter, we have chapters 39 and 40 today. Now, I have before me the chart of the tabernacle as usual, but we will just look at it in a casual sort of way today. Because chapter 39 deals with the garments of the high priest, that is, the garments that he wore. And these garments, by the way, all speak of the person of Christ. And I will begin reading here, and then we're not going to attempt to read this section because we've had the blueprint before. I should say of garments, it's not a blueprint, but I think you ladies call it a pattern. And we've had the pattern, and now they have been made. And Aaron will be clothed with these garments. And notice what is said concerning them. I'm reading now chapter 39, verse 1. And of the blue and purple and scarlet, they made cloths of service to do service in the holy place, and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord commanded Moses. Notice they're called here holy garments. And we read here, And he made the effort of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, fine twine linen. And then we go into details concerning that. And then there was the curious girdle of his effort. And curious means simply this. Curious is something we generally apply to a human being, or even to an animal, but not to an inanimate thing. But it's curious in the sense that it was an unusual 
way in which it was woven. It was not just a simple one. It helped not only the robe of the ephod, but it helped all the garments that the high priest wore, held them in order and in place. Then he talks about the breastplate here. And now these are called in this chapter garments of glory and beauty. And a great emphasis is put upon the mitre, which Aaron wore on his head. And it had on it, in verse 30, we're told, holiness to the Lord. All of these things now have to do with this. And we're told they brought the tabernacle unto Moses and all his furniture and all this and the covering of the ram's skin and all of that. So that now when it's all completed... It's all brought to Moses, so that the last thing actually that's mentioned are the garments of the high priest. Now, I want us to take a look at these garments of the high priest, because it's very important as the high priest speaks of Christ. That is something you couldn't miss, because we're told that very definitely, that the garments speak of the high priest and of Christ as our high priest, by the way. And now we have given here these instructions. Now, basically, Aaron wore what all the other priests wore, and that was a linen garment. All of them were clothed in that fine twine, white, byssus, Egyptian linen. They had on this linen garment, and it had on it sort of a pants that it wore because their nakedness was not to be revealed, although they did serve barefooted, apparently, in the tabernacle. And Aaron, as the high priest, was dressed like the others, basically. And on the great day of atonement, when he took the blood and went into the Holy of Holies, he laid aside all the garments of beauty and glory the outward garments, and just wore this. Now, the linen, the white linen that the priest wore, speaks of righteousness. You remember the Scripture says that those that bear the vessels of the Lord are to be clean. God still says that. I do not believe that God uses a sinful preacher or teacher or a sinful layman today. God's not using them. Now, I don't care how prominent they are. And I don't care about their talent and how many people they influence. They're doing nothing for God. He doesn't accept it. And it'll be nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. But we must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And then there must be a life to back that up. That is certainly taught in these basic garments. Now, the thing that interests me are these garments of glory and beauty that are laid aside by Aaron when he went in to the Holy of Holies, when he offered the sacrifice for the sin of the people, that great day of Yom Kippur, the great day that was the beginning, actually, of days for these people. What an important thing it was. And he took that basin of blood within. Well, now the Lord Jesus came to this earth. He did not lay aside his deity, but he did lay aside the garments of glory and beauty. What's that? He laid aside his prerogatives of God. He laid aside the Shekinah glory, and he came just as a human being. He was born a baby. (laughs) 
It was George MacDonald that said he came a little baby thing that made a woman cry. They were looking for a king to lift them high. But he came just a little baby thing that made a woman cry. That's the way he came into the world. The garments of glory and beauty were laid aside. There should have been, instead of just that few paltry number of shepherds there and the wise men that came later. The whole world should have been there. He laid that aside, friends. He was God manifest in the flesh. What a picture you have here. And when he offered himself, you see, he died in his humanity. I don't quite buy that idea that God died on the cross. It's only what you mean by death. He was separated from God. That is true. That was a rift in the Godhead, to be sure, when he was made sin for us who knew no sin. But even at that moment, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And there's a mystery there, friends, that I can't penetrate. And I've read after a few of the theologians, and you want to know something? They haven't penetrated it either. Now, these garments of beauty and glory really were lovely. You talk about the male of the species in the bird world and animal world is more ornamented than the female. Actually, it's only among men that the female is the one that dresses gaudy and the male very conservative. Now, of course, today we're rather reversing that. And some of the men today that I see, the fact of the matter is I followed a car the other day, tried to get around it on the freeway, and I kept saying, that's a woman driver. And you know it wasn't. <laughs> when I got up, there was a man driver. Well, I'm not sure whether he's a man or not, but he was the male of the species. And the way he was dressed and his hair, you couldn't tell whether it's male or female. But actually, the high priest, my, he was gaudy <laughs> and colorful. And all of these things speak of the person of Christ. And we'll not go over this because most of you follow this study, but some of you may not have followed it. He had on this robe of the aphid, and it had these two stones, one on each shoulder, and six of the names of the tribes of Israel on each one of the shoulders. Speaks of his strength and ability, that is. Speaks of the strength and ability of our great Savior, who... When one sheep got lost, he went out and found it, put it on his shoulder. Thank God we have a Savior, friends, that can go out and put us on his shoulder and bring us back. And he's able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God through him. Then you have that breastplate, like a vest, and it had 12 stones on it. Oh, was it a thing of beauty. And apparently it had in it a sort of a pocket where the Urim and Thummim were placed. And it had something to do with prediction. I do not know how it worked at all. But these beautiful stones right on his breastplate. Now, this speaks of the fact that Christ carries us on his heart today. He loved us. God so loved the world. And he loved the church and he gave himself for it. There are the stones there that depict that. And they were stones of beauty, and this was part of it. Now, down there on the robe of the effort, there were golden bells and pomegranates. 
And so when the high priest, you see, was serving, you could hear those bells ringing. When he went in the holy place, he was in there serving, you know. You could hear the bells outside ringing. And the pomegranate, that speaks of fruit, the fruitful life. And the bell speaks of the testimony of the life. They could hear him. And they could say, well, you know, he's there serving for us. We know he's there. And that's what worship ought to mean to us. It ought to draw us to the person of Christ. If we don't hear the bell ringing, friends, on Sunday morning, there's something wrong. I used to have an elder that was a very wonderful man of God. It was a great encouragement to me as a young preacher. And he would come out on Sunday morning. He'd always say to me, well, you rang the bell today. Well, if you want to know the truth, I didn't. I was a young preacher then. I had some lousy sermons that I preached in those days. I still have those sermons, by the way. But nevertheless, his point was, because he was a Bible student, the important part of the service is that we'll be able to come into the presence of Christ. And I told you about the fella. He was a country boy down there in Georgia. And he came to me one Sunday morning. I never shall forget. And he waited till everybody left. And he took my hand and held it, and tears were coming down his eyes. And he said, you know, I never knew Jesus was so wonderful before. And he wanted to say something else, but he couldn't say it. He just released my hand, turned, walked out of the little country church, out across the cotton patch that was there, because we were right in the corner of a cotton patch. I watched him walk across, and then tears came in my eyes. As I said, oh, God, I hope I can preach that... Everybody will be able to say, at least somebody will be able to say, I didn't know how wonderful Jesus was. Well, may I say, we ought to be able to hear his bells on Sunday morning and not hear all this protest or running up the American flag and all of these things that are used today as gimmicks in our churches and in so-called Christian work today. Friends, if any Christian work doesn't let you hear the bells every now and then, maybe you ought to get in another Christian work. Or maybe you think you're hearing bells when you're not hearing them. And that's about the worst thing you can have happen to you, is to think you hear them when you don't. But you see, these bells were ringing on the inside. What a glorious, wonderful picture this is of the high priest. And these were the garments that he wore. And I had this mitre on it, and that said, Holiness unto the Lord. And that meant holiness. Oh, it does have to do with the inner life. But the important thing is it means this man is totally given to the work of the ministry. Holy means anything that is set aside for the use of God. And I'd like to say this to some of you today, and I've been a preacher a long time, but you know there are a great many people that want a preacher to do everything under the sun. I think many of those people would rather for him to be doing all these other things, socializing, backslapping, around holding somebody's hand and nursemaid, as one preacher said to me, the poor fellow had a nervous breakdown in his church. He told me, he says, you know, said, I find I'm a wet nurse for a lot of little babes in Christ. And he says, I just go around burping them all the time. Well, that's the unfortunate thing. Preacher today who stands in the pulpit ought to be able to wear the mitre, holiness unto the Lord. That is, that he has time to prepare a message. He has time to spend before God. I'm amazed today the number of people 
that invite a preacher out on Saturday night. You ought not to invite your preacher out Saturday night. You ought to let him have that day and that evening for meditation and study. I had an elder say to me one time, in fact, my first minister, I want to go around and visit everybody, and I was around visiting day and night in the first church I served in Nashville. And this elder said to me, now, Vernon, he said, I appreciate you coming to see me. But he said, I'll tell you what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to spend the time that you'd come to see me, spend it in preparation of a message. He said, business is difficult, and I get very weary and discouraged in the world today. And this was a very successful businessman. He said, but when I come to church Sunday morning and Sunday night, I want to hear something that comes from God. I want help there. And he says, I hope you'll spend time so I'll be able to hear from heaven on Sunday morning and Sunday night. Well, I think he had a right to say that. My friend, we need to recognize today that there ought to be that mitre And there are many of us lay folk that need to, if we say we're dedicated to the Lord, we ought to mean it. Now, I have left very little time for this 40th chapter. What you have here is the setting up of the tabernacle. And I only wanted to lift out one thing, because we have dealt with every article of furniture, every part of the tabernacle. And when Moses set it up in the camp of Israel... This is what happened, verse 34 of chapter 40 now. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward, in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. When Paul attempts to identify these people over in the ninth chapter of Romans, he says, "...who are Israelites?" And of the things he enumerates, that one is, they had the glory. They are the only people that ever had the visible glory of God, the visible presence of God. And that was what led them. That cloud would lift in the morning if they were to journey. And if it didn't lift, the children of Israel stayed in the camp. They didn't attempt to move that day. They didn't move by their own wisdom or their own judgment. And they didn't vote on it. And Moses didn't make the decision. The cloud did. Now, we sometimes say this, and I think in our conservative churches, it's pretty meaningless today. We say Christ is the head of the church. How about your church? Is he the head of the church? Are we following the cloud today, or do we put a man on the board because we say, well, you know, he's a successful businessman. My friend, that's not the reason to put him on the board. That ought not to exclude him. Don't misunderstand me. But that ought not to be the reason. And you hear people say today, well, I want to talk to my preacher about whether I should do this or not. A lot of people consult me on things. I'm no expert at telling them what to do. I can't solve their marital problems. And by the way, the psychologists can't either. (laughs) 
May I say to you, there's the pillar of cloud today, but you don't see it. You know, it's the Holy Spirit of God, and He ought to be the one to lead us and to guide us and let us know that we're in the will of God. Oh, how this is neglected today. We're always appealing to something human and something outside. We need a church. We need preachers. We need teachers. We need laymen. We need church members that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. There are too many of them that are just spouting off, talking. And they're talking without any unction at all coming from heaven. Pay no attention to the Word of God. I have been to church board meetings and listened to officers just spout off. No reference at all to what the Word of God says or what might be God's will. Just this constant wanting to put forward our own way. My friend, there's no visible cloud over the church today, but the Holy Spirit of God wants to lead us and guide us. And this book that we've just now concluded is a very wonderful book. Did you notice? Again, it opened in gloom in the brickyards of Egypt, and it closes in glory. The presence of the Lord is there in the tabernacle now and leading these people through the wilderness. God today wants to deliver you from the gloom of the slavery of sin and bring you into the glory of his presence and in the very center of his will that he might lead you and guide you. What a wonderful book, Exodus. He leads you out that he might lead you into a good land. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.